Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. Very excited to welcome Professor Stephen Klein, political theorist, up-and-coming star of political theory from the book that I've just read, and, and now lecturer at King's College across the pond. And this is very exciting for us for a number of reasons, but uh, I believe, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, this is our, our third interview with someone presently across the pond. Uh, Brad Evans and A.C. Grayling, I think, were the others, although this is the first time that it's an American across the pond. We've, have, we've had Brits we've interviewed in America and Brits we've interviewed across the pond, but I I think this is the first American we're interviewing across the pond. So well, welcome, uh, Stephen. Pleasure to Thank have you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And just a quick, I'm actually Canadian, so I, I belong neither to the oh, American look at the, or what kind the of, British. Just the kind of, you know, just the kind of jerk assumption American like yeah, me would yeah, make, yeah. right? It's good because I get to be an outsider both to American politics and to British politics. Oh, I should have I should have known from how nice you are. I should have just, you know, uh, you, you know, there was no instance yet where, where you had to say sorry. So I didn't sorry, realize. Yeah, sorry. Um, sorry about that. Well, I'm I'm sorry for the presumption. And so it's even better, <laughs> even better now. Uh, you know, we, we had Mina on not too long ago. So we, we've had a, you know, a, a spate of Canadians lately. It's been really wonderful. Uh, well, welcome, Stephen. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for and, having me. Uh, and it's a pleasure. And you have this great new book out. Uh, the work of politics, making a democratic welfare state, really meaty and juicy. Uh, I mean, it, it's got something for everyone. It has uh, Weber, Arendt, Habermas, Heidegger. Uh, he, by the way, little aside, uh, this is a true story. We actually contemplated calling the podcast Hot Takes on Habermas. Ah, well, that, so, uh, good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so th- this book is is very interesting and, and meaty, and has really important practical questions. Uh, and and you know, here we love to to have theory meet praxis. So, questions about democratic agency, questions about um, how welfare states relate to capitalism, and whether um, whether welfare institutions serve to kind of uh, reproduce and reinforce the the domination and the oppression under you know capitalist regimes, or whether they can uh, you know and power and be a source of emancipation uh, for for socialist and, and participatory dem- democra- democratic movements and, and uh, democratic agency. So there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, so maybe we could just start with how, how did you dive into um, this approach, this theoretical approach with Weber, Rent, and Habermas, uh, with Germany and Sweden as kind of the the the, the um, historical sites of study, and uh, yeah, maybe just just kind of foreground this project and, and how you came to it because there's obviously years of study that. Yeah, great. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, um, that that's a question you know that I could. It takes me back to my early days in graduate school and thinking about these issues for the first time. Um, but you know, in many ways, I feel like probably for both of you as well. I mean, this book in a way was born of the 2008 financial crisis. So I started graduate school in, in 2010. And one of the things that really struck me, so I'm a political theorist. And if you read political theory from the 90s and the early aughts, I mean, there's nothing about capitalism or political economy or even social democracy. I mean, the dominant debates were about multiculturalism, about globalization. And you can see in a way those really mirroring the sort of... Um, political consensus that you saw in the 90s and the early aughts about, you know, this new era of globalization. Um, my graduation, we all got given books when I graduated from college. And the book we were given, I went to the University of British Columbia, was The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. So that, I think, is a nice representation of, like, the moment. God. So, and then 2008 <laughs> happens. And I, like, I think many people in political theory were sort of thinking about, like, well, how do we make sense of capitalism today? Um, and so... 
that was kind of the starting point. So one part of the book is sort of trying to figure out why did we stop talking about capitalism? Uh, and one of the sources I trace that back to is Max Weber and Max Weber's influence on political theory, because even though Max Weber himself was kind of a great theorist of capitalism in Germany, um, he really approached it through the lens of kind of instrumental rationality, which the idea that like capitalism is mainly about means ends sort of thinking, which in many ways erases power and class domination and all these other things. So part of the book was kind of tracing back, how did we forget and where, what happened to these earlier debates? Um, so that's kind of like this, diagno- I think of that more like diagnosing, why is it so hard uh, to talk about these sorts of issues? And then the other side was trying to develop a kind of positive account of how to bring questions of political economy and capitalism back into political theory without returning to earlier sort of Marxist theories. Um, uh, I mean, I'm in many ways quite sympathetic and close to a lot of contemporary Marxist ways of approaching politics, but without just reducing, you know, all political agency to the structural forces of capitalist society. And so that's, that was kind of the genesis of the project. So that was one part. The other part is I am also just very sympathetic to the welfare state. And I feel like a lot of political theorists influenced by people like Michel Foucault were just presenting this picture of the welfare state that was just so radically hostile and pessimistic. And I thought just kind of erased all the democratic politics that went into constructing the welfare state that I really started to feel like frustrated with my with other political theorists. And then I think as I was working on the project, what was really sort of exciting to me is suddenly you had the Bernie Sanders campaign um, yeah, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, you had these sort of political movements um, that were reframing what welfare politics could be about. So it wasn't just about sort of tinkering around the edges, but saw it as like, look, if we want a, a functioning welfare state, we actually need to fight for it. Um, and so I feel like that also kind of ended up inspiring my thinking as the project wrapped up. Yeah. Could, could you, um, you know, maybe just, you know, for our own edification and for, for listeners, kind of go through the the Foucauldian, you know, uh, view of the what, like the thing you're reacting against, yeah. that view of the welfare state. And maybe uh, you you could start, you know, def- defending, you know, like advancing your own thesis by uh, 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 talking about the sort of the the welfare state as um, and an advancement of like democratic like practices, so to speak, like an advance of democracy through the welfare state. Yeah. Like how was how, that all about? Yeah. So great. Yeah. So um, uh, and the first thing I'll you know I think so the Foucault Foucauldians in political theory, and I think it is reflected in in certain forms of political practice as well on the left. You know, is in some ways a very I feel like deeply anti-statist or skeptical of the state political and theoretical tradition. And so if you think about, so Foucault was writing in the post-war period in France, you know, it was kind of a moment at which the welfare state appeared to be this kind of um, just established fact. And it was one, and I think they were right, that actually had a lot of pathological sort of downsides. You know, it was about producing normalcy. There was this ideal of sort of the worker, the normal able-bodied worker, male worker, that was the kind of presumption. You had all these new ins- medical institutions, psychiatric institutions, and so on that seemed to come along with the welfare state. And so they were clearly picking up on something. Um, and then, of course, when you, you see the new left in the 1960s, you get this kind of revolt against bureaucracy, this revolt against um, kind of these very established 
institutions. And so the Foucauldian picture of the welfare state is essentially like, look, these liberals tell the story of progress through science and reason, and the welfare state kind of embodies that. We can reform society. We can fix all these social problems. But really, it's just a new way of governing populations. It's a new way of kind of making people behave in a certain way, behave in a normal way. And so it has to exclude the abnormal and the different from kind of the political order. And, you know, it's not that I'm against, I mean, I think there, there's a lot of value to that perspective, but like part of me, you know, when you're writing about the welfare state today, it's like, well, how great would it be to just have like a functioning normal welfare state that, you know, provided people basic social security and, and healthcare, you know? So I feel like it was kind of that Foucauldian approach was kind of almost like, you know, it didn't, it was, it became so pervasive per, at the very moment that the thing it was trying to critique was falling apart and something much worse was coming into shape, um, which of course is what we live under today, which is kind of a concerted right-wing attack on the welfare state. But there's also a way which, you know, yeah, yeah. Stephen, it, it, it strikes me just very briefly because it, it seems that, it, you know, and, and maybe this you're about to get into um, all three of the, the types of, of domination and their, and their kind of approaches. Um, uh, but it strikes me that you were, you were saying that not that the Foucauldian or, or the other two approaches are untrue, but they're partial. Yeah. So that, so they're true, you know, so insofar as, as the, they're, they're true, they're partially true. And, uh, insofar as each of them tries to, to be the explanation, it misses out on other important things that you then counter, right? Is that, uh, is that's, that a, a yeah, so point? that's totally fair. And so part of what I do in the book is, so the Foucauldian approach is very focused on kind of modes of domination that turn people into certain types of subjects, whether it's a gendered subject or an able-bodied subject or whatever it might be. But I think, and again, I think that's important to think about, but of course, you know, there's also domination that could be characterized more as structural domination. So like domination of one class or over another, and that just doesn't just disappear because the other sort of domination exists. And so this, you know, I don't know, I don't want to go too much into the weeds of this, but one of the arguments of the book is trying to provide a way of thinking about these different sort of types of domination in society in tandem, rather than just focusing exclusively on, say, you know, the idea that we are dominated by becoming a able, you know, by institutions that turn us into a certain sort of responsible, um, self-controlled subject that, you know, a kind of good bourgeois, uh, responsible individual, that could be bad, but it needs to also be seen against the backdrop of other types of um, domination, such as class domination, which I, which does fall out of a lot of the... Um, picture when you take the Foucauldian view on board. Uh, yeah, it, it strikes me as like what you might call it a somewhat privileged type of position. It's like, well, here we are, you know, in, in France enjoying our nice welfare state and here and we're writing books about, oh, the state is doing all these terrible things um, and, and, you know, making us into sort of automata and like patholo uh, pathologizing all these behaviors and so on. And meanwhile, it's like they're like, we have a very like simple problems over in the United States yeah. here, like Bill Clinton, like, uh, uh, you know, just imposing material deprivation of people or <laughs> right. just like literally starving and like the, you know, kind of wake up, Michel Foucault, wake up. You know? but, uh, yeah. Part, part of me feels like, you know, it's important politically to recognize that a lot of what people are fighting for is like normalcy in the sense of being able to pay their bills on time. So maybe not normalcy in some like 1950s white picket fence way, but like, you know, having a car that runs and can get you to your job on time. And so like a lot of politics is about that, 
But then part of what the book wants to argue is like taking that seriously then opens up a bunch of questions about democracy and the sort of democratic movements that were actually behind the formation of the welfare state historically. And so part of why, to go back to the earlier question, like part of why I'm interested in Germany and Sweden is these are kind of two of the paradigmatic cases of the welfare state that a lot of people who are looking at European welfare states kind of look to. And so part of what I also try to do in the book is really trace out how these kind of grassroots democratic movements were really crucial in the formation of both of those welfare states and kind of challenge, again, ways of thinking about both of those cases that emphasize the top-down, bureaucratic, technocratic, you know, we're trying to control society sort of stuff, which is there. I'm not denying it's there, but it, if you if you take that, if you only take that, I feel like you also, in some way, are like forgetting a lot of really important democratic politics that happened that the left was responsible for, you know, advancing. Yeah, that right. And and go ahead, go ahead, Rania. <laughs> the uh, after you, after you. Oh, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, just just to, the 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 history of the German stuff was very interesting to me because you know you you had like in the sort of mid to to lateish nineteenth uh, century the the social democratic uh, the socialist forces. Um, you know, who, who are at making all these demands about welfare stuff. And then you had Bismarck, who was sort of using a kind of Foucauldian lens, but in a in a deliberate, like in a this is good way. Like, oh, yeah. Yes, we can do welfare to control the masses. We, we can buy off all these rube workers and give them a nice little thing. And that will deflate the whole socialist movement and they won't have, you know, any reason to exist. And therefore, you know, the property classes represented by me will remain in charge and we'll get to, you know, dictate everyone's lives down to the, yeah. you know, but that, that ironically did not, uh, did not work out like he planned. Right. So yeah, the German case is super fascinating and there are sort of three. So there was the arch conservative. So Bismarck was, you know, a uh, Juncker landed aristocrat from Prussia like ultra conservative, um, uh, just, you know, barely believed in political democracy, although he was very good at manipulating German democracy for his ends. And then you also had these liberals who are super interesting, among whom were people like Max Weber, um, who also shared this idea with um, Bismarck that we could use the welfare state to kind of control the working class, but more by, in their view, kind of creating responsible leaders from amongst the workers and so like Gustav Schmoller, who was another very important kind of liberal German thinker, sort of said, look, part of why we should encourage certain types of labor unions is it will teach workers to obey. They'll learn to obey the leaders of their unions. And so it will teach them good obedience and that will kind of help them integrate into the order. But the, I mean, but what we forget, I mean, the Socialist Party in Germany, the Socialist Movement, it was huge. It was, it was a massive, you know, they just had a huge organizational, autonomous organizational capacity. They had you know, tens of thousands of members. And so one example I look to in the book that is kind of one of my favorite is that they create all these elected. Um, so when they passed the healthcare law in Germany to create a national health insurance system, they sort of had to deal with all these pre-existing health insurance kind of schemes that some of which were run by workers, some of which were run by employers. And so they kind of standardized them and they had a kind of um, corporatist model of governance where workers would have certain amount of representation on the boards of these funds. And actually, this was quite important because the boards would often like vote on whether workers would get compensated for certain injuries. They would also determine the amounts of, of payment to doctors for certain sorts of treatment. 
So like they were pretty political bodies that were kind of part of the negotiation of this stuff. And so the socialists saw this and they just worked really hard and got thousands of their members and supporters elected to these funds. And like the conservatives freaked out and they actually kept calling for Bismarck to basically expel the socialists from all these healthcare boards and try to convert them more into like employer run boards. Now, look, you could have a more cynical take and say, well, you know, obviously in the end, the German labor movement, you know, the revolution was unsuccessful after World War One. Um, and so there's obviously this there's a much larger debate about whether this kind of encouraged re- reformism within the party. But if you actually look at what people were saying and doing at the time, like they didn't see it that way. They weren't thinking about like we need to moderate our goals. They're like, no, 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 this is a great way to like get our our people into political offices, get them political experience and actually use these as um, mechanisms for attracting new members and mobilizing our members. Right. And so it's, it's not, and this is, this is where it gets really interesting because these historical examples match up with your, 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 your theory, right? And your, your theoretical analysis about how welfare institutions have been misconstrued as kind of, um, making people into, you know, atomized individuals who are kind of, um, you know, uh, reduced in their ability to have solidarity and connection with, with other, you know, workers. And, um, and in, in so far as, as it serves, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's location then in the struggle against oppression and domination, it, uh, it pacifies rather than empowers. And so, um, you know, it's really interesting to see how you go back and forth from the theoretical to the historical to, to show that that's not actually the case. And, and it's actually, uh, welfare institutions can be these sites of possibility yeah. for empowering, right? For empowering democratic agency and solidarity. Yeah. And, you know, one thing, and this is something that I've been influenced by people like Corey Robin and others on, like the idea that the left is ahistorical or doesn't believe in like historical traditions is, I think, wrong. And I think part of what I wanted to do in the book is kind of recover these earlier historical moments and create almost like a narrative that could inspire contemporary activity. So that's one side. And then the theory, you know, part of why I'm also interested theoretically is like, the way we interpret these historical moments is a kind of theoretical question and influences how we then develop the political theories that orient us towards sort of what we take to be the key problems in our contemporary moment. And so like part of what I think is very ironic is like, so Max Weber in in an interesting way has been quite influential within political theory for left-wing political theorists alongside people like Foucault and actually was very influential on Foucault himself. And so like one of the puzzles or one of the problems I see is like, well, why should we take as a kind of canonical account of the welfare state, the theory of a kind of elitist German bourgeois sociologist. I mean, he clearly was developing his theory to try to shape the narrative about sort of what these political events meant. And so part of where I, so part of how, so I tend to see theory less as kind of like, here's a set of first principles, and then let's like deduce a very abstract ideal that we aspire to. I'm more interested in sort of how does the theory influence the stories we tell ourselves the narratives we have about sort of what happened historically and so what possibilities are open in the present. And so like concretely, when you look at Germany, you see like, okay, so these laws were designed obviously by these various actors like Bismarck who tried to defeat the left. And yet they opened up all these possibilities for political mobilization. Like, I think there's something very similar you can say about Medicare for all, where it's like, you know, this is not, these are not programs that are meant to destabilize capitalism, obviously. Um, but if you see them as resources for democratic mobilization, 
Um, they, I think they can have more radical implications than the designers or the instigators of the programs, you know, may, um, may intend. Right. And you also point out, I think it's important to keep the, the nuance of this and, and critical theory, I think, is helpful here. Uh, in, in the Swedish example that we could maybe get into, um, you know, it is often the case that in a struggle for uh, overcoming one form of domination, uh, a different form of domination is reinforced or furthered. And, and that just presents us with a new site of struggle and, and, and continues uh, the politics uh, of democratic action and agency. Yeah, right? good, yeah. I, I was, so I'm very, in some ways, I'm like, I found the Swedish chapter the hardest to write and the one I think I'm most um, proud of because I really try to do justice to that kind of nuance or that ambiguity, as you put it. So I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, part of what I want to argue, what I argue in that chapter is so I look at the history of gender policy and the relationship between gender and the welfare state in Sweden. And in particular, how kind of struggles with the welfare state in some ways help make explicit structures of unequal gender relations within society or, or different forms of gender domination, but then how often the policies to address that, they never, you know, they don't solve the problem once and for all. You never reach this end state. They can often just kind of transform the nature of the problem. So they can, I mean, again, they can be positive in the whole, but there can always be these kind of, like you say, side effects that we need to be attentive to. Um, And so, for example, what you see in Sweden is you see often like for one key example of this in Sweden was that there was this kind of policy in the 60s towards a more gen- to encourage equal participation in the workforce between men and women, but this coincided with a slowdown in job growth, and so women primarily entered the public sector workforce. And so in some ways, this obviously was an advance over previous more patriarchal structures in Swedish society, but then it created a lot of new dilemmas insofar as um, gender conflict got mapped onto conflict between public and private sector Workers, And so that's like a very concrete, I think, example of sort of how, yeah, these are open ended struggles. And so I'm, you know, and this is my critical theory roots, like there's never going to be this utopian endpoint where you can say, like, we've solved these problems. We always need to be attentive to the um, remainders and the after effects and the kind of um, often very ambivalent outcomes of different political struggles, even as we say, like, that was a positive in many ways, a success and a victory for progressive left-wing politics. Yeah, I, th- I think on the left, it's very, I don't know why this happens so much on the left, uh, the, the inability to say this was good there, this was bad, and we have to do something about the bad, but keep the good, in the same way that leftists will say, like, the New Deal was bad because it was racist or something. Yeah. Right? And it's just, it's not that it's not that hard to do both at the same time, to critique what was bad and, and celebrate what was good and try to move towards, you know, a, a better version of what was done before. Right? Yeah, and I think, you know, and the New Deal is a very, is a, is a, an, another just fascinating, ambiguous example where you you have all sorts of intersect, you know, and again, I think part of like one of the things I say in the book at one point, but then I never actually kind of, I think, fully live up to is like, we shouldn't talk about the welfare state or even the new deal. I mean, that's a term that captures as a monolithic yeah, thing, so right? Contradictory yeah. institutions and imperatives and negotiations that are going on at that historic moment. So on the one hand, you have like the federal government resegregating a lot of the work programs coming in and resegregating them. So like some pretty shockingly racist um, stuff enforced by the, you know, FDR administration. But on the other hand, you have this enormous growth in, in black employment. I mean, when you read these critiques of the new deal, 
like the thing I often want to ask people is like, okay, well, how do you explain the change in voting patterns then after the New Deal, like the, the shift of African-American voters towards the Democrats? It clearly is, always, is going to be a more complicated and more, and that's all politics. I mean, you know, this is where Weber is right. It's like, there is going to be compromise and negotiation that goes on where Weber, someone like Weber is wrong. It's to like valorize that as the be all and end all or where liberals go wrong is to take compromise as like a positive normative thing rather than just like a fact of life that then you have to try to use the good to for, force whatever settlement, what there was into a new and better settlement, you know? And I do think it matters to, to I mean, you do a, a great job of showing how the different forms of domination um, relate to, I mean, it does matter what the subject formation is, right? Totally. The, the inner subjective also matters. And so when you look at like, um, later on, you, you know, you talk about, um, you know, the UBI and the Sovereign Wealth Fund and... Um, and how how certain policies, and this is where just the material needs themselves are, are not enough to think about, because just like we've talked about, Ryan, about how um, the existence of a market is less relevant than how the market is structured. Similarly, whether uh, a negative income tax is is the mechanism uh, for providing funds to people versus something like a um, you know a sovereign wealth fund that has you know actual participatory control or something like th- th- these things really. Uh, um, matter politically in terms of uh, what they do to our agency and how totally. they either bring solidar- solidarity or not. So maybe you, you could talk a little bit about about that, how the theoretical yeah, analysis could... Maybe I should also say something about the, the theory of domination in the book as well, because that, you know, sure. I think that... So one of, the argu- you know, one of the arguments I want to make in the book, or one of the things I want to criticize is the idea that the welfare state is mainly about either security, like, you know, securing people against um, unforeseen risks and unforeseen events. So kind of there's a security model of the welfare state and then also a kind of redistribution model of the welfare state. The welfare state's primarily kind of historically been about just material redistribution between groups within society. Um, and part of what I want to, what I argue is really if what I'm interested in is how the welfare state has been a site of struggles against structures and relationships of domination within society. And so really that's what we should focus on is kind of how the welfare state relates to different, um, to domination. Really the goal of left politics historically has been challenging and overcoming domination. But then there's obviously a big question. What is it? What is domination about? And what do we mean when we say this is a relationship of domination? And, and so one of the, one of the ideas in the book is really, we should think about kind of different levels or, or structures of types of domination. So some are very direct and interpersonal relationships of domination. So like, Slave, the relation between a slave and a master is a very, you know, direct kind of overt domination or the domination of a kind of an autocratic tyrant over their people. Um, we, we can also think about domination in terms of kind of groups. So um, class domination or gender domination, where like you're dominated as a member of that group. So you're dominated as a worker by a kind of um, distribution of power in society. And then we can also think about domination. And this is kind of the trickiest. And this is what people like Foucault focus on in terms of kind of these very subtle processes that turn us into, um, you know, certain types of people, responsible subjects. I think, Ryan, you said earlier, like automatons or something like that. So that's that's kind of like one of the big theoretical arguments of the book is to kind of develop this view of dom- these three types of domination and then show how they relate to these struggles in the welfare state. 
And then, if it, so then one of the arguments I make, like if you have this kind of more nuanced and complex view of domination, like it's not enough just to look at how like a UBI, for example, a, a universal basic income, how much redistribution it might entail or something. You really need to look at kind of what are the institutions behind this? Are those institutions going to enable democratic mobilization, democratic politics, um, or are they going to be very, say, top down and just focused on, say, addressing one type of domination? So say, like one argument for a UBI is it really helps people leave um, dominating relationships in the workplace, but that's only focusing on kind of your boss being able to boss you around. That doesn't focus, say, on you being a member of a certain class that is dominated on a more general level. And so, um, uh, yeah, this is where like the nitty gritty does really matter. It's not enough just to sort of specify the end goal of a, of a policy. You really need to look at what sort of institutions go along with that um, with that policy. Right. Because if you if you have the direct domination that's overcome, that's great. But if it doesn't address the structural and if it doesn't empower solidarity and the politics required to overcome the other forms of domination, um, then you're just you're just moving from one form to another, it seems. Right. And that's why I, I think, you know, if, if you're up for it, talking about a rent and, and worldly mediators could be really interesting because it seems like you found welfare institutions to be um, a, a site at which each of these forms of domination um, can be struggled. against. Yeah, this is so this is where the book this is kind of my most political theory hat i suppose so like at the end of the day i'm a political theorist you know and i'm i i like political theory and so some of that's going to be quite abstract and um uh, and hannah rent is a complex uh friend for i'd say more people who consider themselves maybe more left-wing political theorists so um uh, you know many people see her as slightly more of she's just a very idiosyncratic thinker um, and especially now with the kind of totalitarianism debates around Trump, you know, certain aspects of her thought, this kind of anti-totalitarian aspect of her thought is really what's being emphasized. Um, but there's a whole other side of her right, which is the side I like more, which is a real kind of democratic politics, democratic mobilization. And, you know, she's really one of the key thinkers for thinking through kind of um, democ- the meaning and significance of democratic social movements for um, power and authority and the state and things like this. And so what I one of the arguments I make in the book is Arendt actually has this really interesting account of sort of the relationship between politics and the economy that focuses on these ideas of, of worldly mediators. Um, and so this is the idea that certain things are both sites of kind of means ends calculation, but also open up kind of collective judgments about how the world ought to be. So like Social Security could be an example of this. So like on the one hand, you could say, look, Social Security, it's like a economic actuarial problem. You know, we have to make sure people paid enough money for the benefits we're going to pay out, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's a very technical thing. But it's also, you know, a very, you know, you get your Social Security card in the mail. And like, that's a symbol of you belonging to a kind of democratic political um, world, a shared world with the other participants in that. And so it can have, it has these effects on how people act and behave and view themselves that go beyond just this kind of calculative means ends rationality. And so I use that idea to say like, this could actually be a tool for thinking much more broadly about how to think about the welfare state. Like, yeah, a lot of these welfare institutions do involve kind of instrumental means ends calculations, but they also create these kind of shared context of political action. That is where you see the democratic mobilization and the effort to kind of think about these broader structures of domination in society. 
Yeah. And that's why you say that, that in-kind uh, services with universal access are more likely to produce those democratic dynamics than just simple, like, direct transfers, right? And cash so is, I'm, I'm definitely like a UBI skeptic in many respects. I mean, I think it would obviously be great to have like a robust universal basic income. But like, so, you know, I've just, this. we can talk about my transatlantic experience. So I moved to the UK, like, um, just less than two weeks ago. Um and the NHS obviously is like one of the most treasured institutions in British society. And part of why that is, is because it's like a whole, it penetrates deeply into society. You know, people know nurses, they know people who work there, they have a relationship with that institution. Um, and I just don't think it would be the same if people were like getting vouchers for healthcare services, right? Um, and so it's a, it's, it structures the kind of the field of democratic politics in a much deeper and more profound Way And so a lot of political scientists have looked at this, like the way that service-based programs kind of create political constituencies that will defend them over time. Um, but I think it kind of goes even further than that. Like it has to do with the fact that these are like public symbols of kind of historical accomplishments for democratic politics. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very, I, I tend to be skeptical of, of people who say like these are inefficient, these, you know, redistribute towards upwards, upwardsly redistribute towards the middle class. I mean, those all, it's true, but like, it just seems beside the point or it misses the broader picture, which is like, these become kind of sites and um, uh, objects of democratic politics when they're at a universal service in a way that like cash transfers, um, even a very generous tra cash transfer, I just am very skeptical those would ever become like that. It, it strikes me also that your, your, um, your, your notions of, of domination and stuff come into the, the policy design uh, question from the other side as well. When you're talking about really heavily means tested programs. Um, and so, you know, for example, like you have, you know, social security, old age insurance, which is a, a you know, reasonably generous uh, retirement program. And then you have social security disability insurance, which is not, uh, very generous at all. And the uh, qualification process is a huge pain in the ass. It takes forever. And they're constantly conducting reviews of your entire life to, to make sure that you are, you know, not faking it somehow. And which in a lot of states basically amounts to finding some excuse to kick you off the program for any reason. And so, you know, the, the, in so far as like you like welfare states are capable of producing like um uh, uh you know a kind of like d dependent class like just a downtrodden class of people who feel like they you know just depend on the government it is precisely these type of really uh you know the worst kind of you know Foucauldian like uh uh you know, meddling bureaucrats who are just like, hold your, hold your life in their hands and, totally. and, and can, can sort of, uh, decide, you know, your own fate on any sort of whim totally. as compared to the universal thing that like everyone, I mean, in the case of a disability program, like that would obviously be somewhat different, but you could imagine one that was much more, uh, you know, lenient in terms of like how people got on it, you know, or it's like, you get a no from a doctor, boom, you're on it and you don't have to fuss with it anymore. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like, like the, the, that can sort of go, you know, like both ways and like the left ought to think about, you know, the, the, 
the the politics of domination in there uh, when they're talking about designing policy, right? Totally. And I think means, you know, American means testing is such a incredible example of this. I mean, also, if you look at the history of kind of welfare, more narrowly construed, like aid for families with dependent children and, and all these policies, I mean, some of the Foucauldian intrusions and regulatory apparatuses that government incredibly creative ways to deny people claims, but also to kind of monitor them and supervise them and, 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 you know, um, ensure they're behaving in a certain way. You know, these, this has often been the kind of, yeah, where the Foucauldian framework, I think really gets its teeth from. And I think, you know, so part of what I'd say is yes, the left should be, you know, really, really cognizant of sort of how to avoid designing policies that can empower kind of, a very questionable set of institutions and agencies that end up kind of regulating and monitoring people's lives. Now, the flip side, I'll also say, though, is like there's a really interesting history of how these supposedly kind of passive subjective populations then come to contest um, a lot of these efforts to discipline and subject them. So the history of, you know, the yeah. uh, the welfare rights movement in the U.S. is super interesting uh, there's actually part of there's work on the on the workers movement in Germany and how they contested um, disability insurance in Germany, because often they would say, like, you are construing this as like an individual failure. But this was actually a social and political failure that was produced by, you know, the larger structure of capitalism within within Germany. Um, you know, I think also, you know, we should be thinking about. So one thing I really think is important is to think about if you are going to design these sorts of institutions or if you have if you've inherited them, how to sort of expand who gets to participate in making these sorts of decisions to include, you know, social movement organizations that might have a less narrow technocratic understanding of say what disability is and have a more political and social understanding of the phenomenon can kind of challenge these institutions Mm -hmm. to expand how they think about um, uh, whatever it is they're trying to means test. Hmm. Yeah, so to, to to make more participatory and democratic, um, the boundary drawing that sometimes needs to be done. Um, th- though, as much as we can, I think the idea that that things should be universal seem to to kind of uh, work against some of the you know at least the structural form of uh, domination that pits those that get the benefits against totally. those that don't, right? Uh, and also that subject formation. Look, Foucault, Foucault got a number of things right. The whole idea that that um, you have to be responsible and therefore you have to look for work at all times and and you know there's the welfare queen because she's just you know wanting to take the government's money and be lazy like that all is is important to to combat and i think that the universality of um whether it's medicare for all uh or or whether it's i guess social security is universal for everyone once they reach that age that uh, at least seems to address the kind of uh, structural and abstract domination that can can result from um you know means testing and things like that completely and there's also just so much evidence that the universal programs just survive longer and are more popular. I mean, it's just, you know, if you look at the more empirical political science literature, I think that's just a very clear consensus. And I think what you really need to push back against is a kind of left liberal anxiety that these are less efficient programs. And like, they might in some ways be less efficient in the short run, but in the long run, they're going to be much more sustainable and efficient than the means tested alternatives. And so, like, if you, I mean, it's really fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of liberal Democrats who were, you know, if you read political theory and others in the late 80s, 90s, who were really pushing for more means testing. And it was this anxiety about the middle classes kind of getting this the, too much government benefits and the wastefulness of that. And again, I think that's just a really 
dangerous worry, you know, to worry so much about efficiency and rationality at the expense of politics. Like it's just, I mean, we see now, I think just how, how dangerous that, that is. What, what is, you know, speaking of this sort of instrumental, in, uh, Jesus means and, means <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, cal- uh, calculation, like viewpoint, um, do, do you think that this has, you know, a sort of place in the rhetorical toolbox? Because, you know, this is something that I, I tend to use a lot be, uh, because, you know, on, on sort of on the grounds of owning the libs by their own logic type of thing. Yeah. You know, you, there are many ways you can point to the universalist welfare state being, in fact, more efficient. Totally. You know, even yeah. on the grounds of neoliberalism to say that, like, instead of having a little means tested thing that costs a lot of money and is a huge pain in the ass and also dominating, you know, to all these little groups, to the students and the disabled people and the paid leave and whatever, you can just make everyone eligible, you know, according to the categories or just for everyone like Medicare for all. And then you have one big means test bureaucracy, which is called the tax system, the IRS. And that, you know, sort of levels everything out. If somebody's getting an unfair benefit, well, you just tax it back from at the end of the year. Um, but you know, it's, I, I think you're definitely correct that, um, you know, we need to pay a lot of attention to, uh, the, these, you know, the, the, the world making and the, um, subject formation and the, you know, how these things uh, intersect with democracy and so on. But it seems also that like there, there's a, there's a lot of decent case to be made on the almost a quasi technocratic ground to just say like, no, look, these programs are really clean and efficient and they make a lot of sense in addition to, you know, all those other things. So you're saying, can we, if we, you know, get the Vox people on board with the universal welfare state (laughs) and yeah, I think that makes total sense, you know, like, and you look at, you know, it's like, this is like what doing taxes on your postcard in Nordic countries, right? That your tax return there is like half a page long. And that's because they don't have all this governance through the back door, through the tax code, you know, and, and I also do think it's worth, you know, look, having these really complex administrative systems, I mean, the opacity of them produce, prevents, presents, presents, sorry, all these opportunities for, you know, insurance companies and and so on to kind of capture those systems. So, yeah, I mean, I think, and this is an interest. I mean, I've actually gotten this question before, like, aren't I just being too negative about like good administration and like good bureaucracy, which I do think is a fair criticism of the book in some ways. Like I'm, I'm, I maybe I'm still like, I'm a, still a real like grassroots democracy, like good part, you know, get participation in these institutions sort of thinker. Um, so, you know, I don't, but maybe it's true, like actually just getting a really good, efficient functioning democracy, welfare, democratic welfare state, like that would be amazing. And so we don't necessarily need to worry so much or, you know, we, we can make those appeals and that's, yeah, I agree. I don't know that's necessarily reinforcing sort of a strict means ends, you know, technocratic vision. Um, I, I see no reason why we should, you know, if we were on the left, relinquish good governance as a kind of, you know, one argument in the, in the toolkit. So I, yeah, I think I, I would say I, I agree yeah, with that. I mean, I I'm think also it's, maybe it's, guilty of not, of, of not <laughs> uh, giving that enough credence. No, to be, to be fair to you, I, I think good administration and good bureaucracy is, as Ryan was suggesting, cleaner and more simple, as you pointed out with Norway. It's, is that the technocratic dream is that you need bureaucrats because of the complexity, because you want 
Kamala Harris's idea for Pell Grants in certain communities. If somebody in the first few years has this net revenue, then they get this, you know I mean? Like ri- ri- ridiculous, like neoliberal incentives yeah. um, that, that requ- require just an absurd amount of, um, you know, diagnostics and, and supervising to figure out who qualifies and who doesn't. That's not good administration. That's not good bureaucracy. That's just like needlessly complex and, ri- and ridiculous. Right. And yeah, totally. But I do think where, you know, where you need to be careful with the technocratic framework is like even in some ways, you know, there's a lot of cases where universal services are just more efficient full stop. So like healthcare, it's pretty obvious that that is the case. But there's a lot of the welfare of kind of social policies, especially once you get into like collective wage policies and labor policies, where like you do need to just bite the bullet and say like, look, these are going to involve a certain amount of redistribution to maybe people who don't quote unquote deserve it. And like that is that is the what it means to have solidarity in society is to like have everyone buy into these institutions. And so I think where, you know, where sometimes the like you read, you know, it's like once you start getting into like all the neoliberal anxiety around like occupational licensing and labor market rigidities and all this sort of stuff, which is also part of the, you know, part of the welfare state, that's where kind of the the obsession with efficiency and um, means ends rationality kind of maybe overpowers the democratic more attention to kind of the democratic foundations of these policies. Right. Um, and also, I mean, you know, and so, so that's one area where I start to worry that like appeals to means ends administrative rationality starts to fall apart a little bit is when you look at like work, work and labor and, and the idea of labor markets um, and where you start needing to be maybe more, making more just straightforwardly like solidaristic political arguments for why we need strong labor movements, strong unions and things like that. Yeah. So what would you say? Go ahead, Rania. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, uh, coming back from the, you know, maybe, uh, attacking myself from your point of view, um, you know, coming back around (laughs) the other direction, you know, I think it, it, it's not a coincidence that, the, the bureaucracies in democratic states that are much more sort of egalitarian, you know, and democratic in your sense with like fairly, you know, uh, powerful labor unions and stuff and a much more engaged citizenry like the Nordic countries and so on. Um, you know, I, I think that that, um, uh, a good administrative bureaucracy, you know, in a sense that like things just work, you know, like, like, the, the potholes are filled, the garbage is picked up on time, the, you know, you go to the DMV, it's quick and easy and, you know, efficient in the sense of like it runs quickly and simply and not like it improves GDP. Like I think those are two things that neoliberals, uh, conflate mm-hmm. often very dubiously. Uh, that, that requires a, you know, a lot of people to behave in ways that are not profit maximizing, you know, that are just based on, uh, you know, solidarity and a spirit of core and thinking like, well, you know, I am a Norwegian bureaucrat and by God, I'll do a good job because that's what it means, you know, (laughs) and then also an expectation on the part of the citizenry that, uh, you know, it's a point of pride to have a, you know, like a nice, efficient, garbage service and like and if it doesn't work then why you should go complain to somebody you know that sort of thing and so i think there is an if there's a you know these things sort of build on each other i think you know and that and that having having the the democratic spirit 
uh, uh, helps with your, you know, construction of a democratic state in a way that, that, that is more, you know, functional in an administrative sense, I believe at least. Completely. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, I think that that's why you need to kind of have a political starting point rather than an economic, purely economic, or that's where the political kind of thinking I think has to come back into the picture. Right. Is to say like, yeah, people are not, um, uh, incentive following automatons like they are situated people who live in like a world with other people and they care about that world yeah and if you're i mean you go for just a utilitarian type of perspective you know let's you know put on our neoliberal thinking cap and you're like okay occupational licensing is it good or bad and then you sort of concoct a uh you know a sort of toy model in which it reduces the national GDP by 0.0001%. And like, this country is so rich. Who gives a shit? Why don't we think about what sort of like social function it's serving and whether or, or not it's good. You know, like, is it easy? Like, does the job pay well that it's doing? Or like, are we having a shortage of, of hairdressers or whatever? And like, this seems to me, you know, on, on any sort of ground you care to, to look at it, a much more reasonable way of thinking in a rich country that like, we don't, we don't need to keep maniacally ratcheting up GDP until we've just, you know, sucked up all the rare earth elements out of the entire planet. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's why, that's why, you know, I, it was um, a delight to have AC Grayling on the, on the podcast, such a gentleman and a scholar. Um, but, but, you know, his, his ideas politically just kind of, to me, smacked of the kind of uh, technocratic liberalism as like nonpartisan, neutral, efficient governance. So that c- the citizenry can just like have more time to do their laundry and not think about politics, which, which to me was a problem just like historically, because that never, first of all, it's not an ideal normative world for me, but also it, it historically doesn't sustain itself. You get the Boris Johnsons, you get, you don't get then the solidarity and the, the, uh, the practices that cultivate kind of the kind of citizenship that's active and aware that you need for the, when the struggle comes to fight for, uh, you know, uh, emancipation and overcoming uh, forms of domination. Uh, and so I, again, I think it's so important to come back and I was going to ask you about the job guarantee and your thoughts about, um, you know, different different versions or, or ideas about, about that proposal, because uh, it both goes to what we were talking about before. This might be kind of complex to figure out bureaucratically how this would work. Um, but also, I think it, it speaks to important questions of what does this do for us in terms of uh, social solidarity and, and practices of, of democratic uh, agency? So what, what are your thoughts about, uh, about that? Yeah, it's a great, and it's something, you know, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't something I had, again, it was one of these things where I sort of when I started working on the book, I a wasn't I was very th- more in the theory world, and I, and I should also give a shout out to my advisor John McCormick, who really really pushed me to like say something, get into the nitty gritty of the policy implications of the the book. But then the job guarantee just wasn't really. It, I mean, it's kind of incredible how it percolated up and became a, a a public issue in a way that it wasn't when I started working on it. But I do think it's it's a very interesting policy because I think it's it has this very interesting double edged. Characters. So, you know, you see a lot of people like one criticism of it is it kind of reinforces work as the ideal in this. And this could be like a Foucauldian critique, right? Like it normalizes the idea that to be deserving of welfare, you need to be a worker. But I don't buy that entirely. So I think it actually ends up transforming the meaning of work and it turns work away from being like something you do for someone else or something you do to survive and towards being like part of what it means to participate in democratic politics, right? Because all of a sudden you see like 
your job, you know, when you are in your job guarantee, like you're doing something for the community and you are kind of claiming it as your citizen, as a kind of basis of your belonging in that Democrat, like you, like, no, it's the issue is not that people don't want to work. It's that, or that we have this kind of fetishization of our work ethic, which obviously to some extent is true in America, but like that applies more to like Hill staffers than ordinary people, I think. Um, No, it's that like, the issue is that there are not good jobs available to people. And I think, so I do think kind of the symbolic and you could say worldly implications of it, um, I find really um, compelling. And so, you know, I, I, again, I tend to be more on the side of things like job guarantees, which is closer to like a universal service than I would be to have for like basic income programs. I know there's like endless debates about job guarantee versus basic income and people on both sides of that divide. And, Obviously, I mean, why not both? You know, they're both. Why not know, both? Like, I don't. Yeah. I don't mind. I, I don't see it as a. You know, they both to me seem like pretty radical aspirations. But what I do like about the job guarantee is how it creates a sense of their of a political and administrative world that people are going to kind of enter into when they enter into the program that I think could have significance for changing the meaning of work more broadly in society. Well, the last question I've got is is um, just to maybe talk a little bit about um, your uh, reconceptualization or whatever you want to call it of uh, Habermas and and his uh, theory of domination. Um, it just you know maybe just as a as a f- final treat for uh, someone like myself <laughs> who has not yet read Habermas, despite. Um, Alexi's saying that we were maybe going to name the podcast after <laughs> hot takes on Habermas. Yeah, Habermas. But yeah, you can know, you talk about that? And Habermas himself was full of some hot takes. I mean, you think of him now as this very like <laughs> staid conservative. You know, I mean, he's obviously always been politically left, but pretty like I write three thousand page books that are for you know German academic audience. But he had some hot takes in his own day. I mean, he was pretty radical at times. So I personally, I'm a fan of Habermas. Wait, did he die? He's still, yeah, he's, he's still, still kicking around, yeah. isn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he good. just published okay. a magnum, another magnum, 3000 page magnum opus on the history of religion and philosophy. Um, uh, even though he's like <laughs> nice. 90, 90 something. I mean, it's, it's truly incredible. I mean, um, uh, just in terms of sheer output level, it's, you know, and so like, I think, I think there's a lot in Habermas that's fascinating. I think he gets maybe sometimes a bad rap on the left in some ways for understandable reasons, you know, he, there's ways in which he becomes quite liberal towards the end of his career, um, uh, in, in his later work. Um, but really, I mean, Habermas once called himself the last Marxist. And when you read a lot of his works, I mean, he's intensely interested in how to think about capitalism under the welfare state. And so what I try to do with Habermas, is I kind of try to bring out the radical Habermas and say like the center of Habermas's philosophy is not like deliberative democracy in this very kind of um, idealized sense. It's not civility. I had an essay that I published in Aeon about like Habermas's critique of civility. Um, all these things that sometimes get associated with Habermas, like rational discourse. I mean, yes, he talks about that, but really the center of his work is like thinking about the different forms of domination under capitalism. And in particular, how you move in his, in his thinking, you move from these earlier forms of more direct domination towards structural class domination and then the kind of most, these very kind of large scale forms of domination by just kind of market rationality or the rationality of the state itself. And so um, he was a huge inspiration for the 
the way I approach the project. But again, I'm just trying to draw out from his thinking, like he was, he has some pretty radical diagnoses, I feel like. Um, and in particular, in his earlier work in the 60s and 70s, he really develops this pretty um, kind of out there theory of how domination, class domination relates to subjectivity and subject formation. Um, and so uh, just a little teaser, you know, from the book, I go back to those earlier works of Habermas. And essentially the argument is, um, uh, that we need to focus on the relationship between individual subjective, you know, our, how we formed as subjects and these more class-based forms of domination. Um, uh, and um, uh, against his, the skeptic, the Habermas skeptics, he's actually, I think, the most, probably the most useful theorist for really trying to think that through. Um, and I did my best, Ryan, to make him somewhat more... Um, uh, easily digestible. I don't know that I fully succeeded. Um, uh, so he remains, I think, a very, um, at times, overly challenging writer. Um, but I think the ideas are really, really interesting and really useful for the left in thinking about what it would mean to overcome different types of domination. And I think you do a great job of making accessible a lot of uh, complex theory. And, uh, you know, I just agree both, both with Habermas and, and with you. I, you know, the, these different theories need to be integrated and synthesized and, and, and looking at how, um, you know, the, the kind of, I mean, whether it's Marx and the, the base superstructure of Gramsci and hegemony, uh, the, you know, the, there, there is this, of course, conceptually distinct, but in reality conjoined, um, reality of, you know, the interior of me and the exterior of me, the intersubjective, all these things are being acted upon uh, dynamically and together. Uh, and so to think about how we uh, empower and overcome and, and liberate um, you know, ourselves collectively and individually, we have to think uh, through these things in, in these ways. And so I guess my last question has to do with, with that. And um, I, I guess it's another kind of dividing line theoretically, uh, rather than focusing on just inequality uh, or the, you know, therefore equality as, as the goal for the left. Uh, What do you think about this idea that we should focus on um, forms of domination as the problem and therefore forms of liberation or freedom or empowerment as as the kind of uh, collective solution? So I'm I'm firmly in this camp that if you look at the history of the left and where the left is today, freedom has always been kind of one of the... Freedom and um, emancipation have been the guiding ideals and not equality. Um, Material equality can help realize that, obviously, and, and and freedom has to be a kind of conjoined of solidarity. So it has to be an egalitarian thing. And so I think the left is egalitarian. But I think one of the big pathologies of, of political theory has been to associate egalitarianism with something like distributive justice um, or equal, you know, equality in a kind of material, purely distributive sense. Um, because like that ignores, and this is, I mean, I didn't come up with this critique, but that ignores questions about the organization of the workplace, the organization of production, in all these sites where power is exercised over other people by individuals or groups, and that really should be the focal point. How do we ensure that power um, is not a source of domination, but rather is a source of collective empowerment and collective emancipation? And so, um, so that's one of the key things I want to, one of the key arguments I, or points I want to get across in the book is like, when we think of the welfare state, don't think of, you know, let's obviously redistribution is important, but like, that to maybe agree with you, Ryan, like redistribution is the means to the end. The end is collective emancipation from relationships of domination. Um, and so, and I think focusing on that, I mean, in some, A, it allows us to be much more expansive in, in 
what sort of issues we focus on. I think it better integrates concerns around race and gender and all these kind of different struggles into a single kind of rallying cry. Um, but also, I just think that that is a more, you know, I think living in a society characterized by democratic solidarity, to me, that's much more appealing than just focusing on kind of whether we are materially equal with each other, which again, I think that's very important. But that to me is not the 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 thing that we really should be striving for. And it seems that, you know, this book does really, uh, I think, a fascinating job to show how perhaps counterintuitively on the left, especially welfare institutions can be the sites for for advancing exactly that leftist cause for emancipation over overcoming forms of domination. And I guess I lied because I do have one more question if you have, if if that's okay. Uh, Yeah, I'm just so interested because it is such a leftist um, critique to say that social democracy is a barrier to democratic socialism yeah. or, or to, to truly radical transformation, um, but in part because they think of welfare institutions as just distributive and not, you know, involving the means of production and so forth. So, so what what would be your kind of like uh, elevator pitch as to, to why um, you know leftists who think social democracy is inherently reformist yeah. and not radical are wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think so. First of all, that neglects. The ways in which, so my, you know, my key idea is like, it's just wrong to think that these institutions just kind of are like appendages to capitalism, you know, that they're like the correctives for capitalism. And if you think that, it's hard to explain why they take so much political work to realize them. You know, is it that capitalists are just deluded about their self-interest? Well, no, it can't be the case, right? It's because the implications of these programs are often much larger than their initial design, right? They can often divorce wages from um, market mechanisms. They can expand the, you know, scope of democracy into domains that weren't previously democratized. Um, And so, you know, if you're going to be like the, the problem with the radical critique of reformism is it just doesn't explain why people fought so damn hard to get these supposedly reformist, you know, um, uh, capitalism reinforcing institutions. Of course, it is the case. We live in a capitalist society. So until we overcome capitalism, political institutions are going to be inflected by and shaped by capitalism. Um, and so we should, you know, we should be thinking strategically about sort of what are the, the pressure points that these institutions open up to push further and to maybe more fundamentally disrupt some of the operating logics of capitalism. Um, uh, but yeah, the idea that this is all just about... Um, uh, you know, reinforcing the status quo, I just think it's a really messed up understanding of how political change and political transformation comes about. And I personally, this is going to be polemical, I think it is somewhat disrespectful to the agency of all the people who fight, have fought for those institutions, often against very concerted resistance by, represent, by people who take themselves to be defending the status quo. Here, here. That's my, yeah. that's my defense of radical reformism. And my my where I get annoyed with the I love uh, it with the Marxist critiques of reformism. Some Marxist critiques of reformism. <laughs> yeah. Well, you look at the Communist Manifesto, and there's a whole bunch of reforms in there that yeah. are you know eight hour day and so on. So you know, I'd say they're 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 sla- they're libeling the 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 founder himself. Yeah, um, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, I guess uh, that's a good place to wrap it up. Um, yeah, Stephen Klein, the book is called The Work of Politics. 
we will link it in the description. Um, it's it's some dense stuff, I'll say, but uh, you know, it's it's definitely worth plowing through if you uh, you know you're into political theory and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, Stephen, thanks thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for talking to Thank us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a, I had a great uh, time, and I, I really appreciated the opportunity to talk about some of these issues. Bye-bye. <laughs>